And we're recording. <laughs> oh, hello and welcome to All Things Japanese from the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center in Toronto. Our topic today is the story of kimono, Japanese traditional dress. My name is John Ota, and I serve on the art committee and on the board of the JCCC. Thank you for joining us. Our podcast on kimono is inspired by a film that will be screened at the upcoming Toronto Japanese Film Festival, opening on June 5th, 2021, titled The Devil Wears Juni Hito Kimono. We will be chatting about the film later in the podcast. By the way, you can order passes to the Toronto Japanese Film Festival right now at jcc.on.ca. We're honored to have two special guests today, Liza Dalby and Catherine Yamashita. Our first guest, Liza Dalby, is an esteemed anthropologist, expert on Japanese culture, and author of multiple books, including Geisha, East Wind Melts the Ice, The Tale of Murasaki, and Kimono. She has literally written the book on kimono. Also, Liza Dalby was the first non-Japanese to train as a geisha. Our second guest is Catherine Yamashita, PhD in art education, respected traditional Japanese dancer and member of our JCC art committee. Liza, Catherine, how are you today? Just fine, thanks. Yeah, hi, John. Doing well. Oh, thank you for being with us. The story of kimono. I am so excited. I love kimono, the colors, the patterns, the fabrics, and the history. Liza Dolby, so nice of you to join us today from California. Thank you so much. Welcome to Canada. Please tell <laughs> thank us you, John. <laughs> sure. Please tell us what you like about kimono. And how did you get started writing the book on kimono? Um, well, I mean, what's not to like about kimono there? I mean, there are some things, but um, it's so beautiful in many dimensions. Uh, you know, kimono is an art object. You can lay it out flat because of the way it's constructed. And its shape, as you know, has not changed um, very much at all over the centuries that it's been worn, which means that kimono fashion has always involved colors, patterns, um, the art that's on the garment. So that's a kind of one dimensional aspect, but um, there's a, there's a, um, a more three-dimensional aspect when it's put on because you take this flat garment, you put it on a human body and, and it changes, um, you know, it becomes almost sculptural. And then I'm sure as Catherine knows, there's a fourth dimensional aspect of it when it's, when it moves, when it's, uh, especially when it's used in dance. Uh, kimono is an absolute element it's essential for doing tradition traditional Japanese dance just watching how the the shape uh, of it of it moves so you know as an object I think it's uh, it's absolutely fabulous um, how I got interested in it was during my study of the geisha um, 
and learning about kimono through the geisha's eyes because they're one of the very few groups of women who actually wear kimono in their everyday life. And they wear a style of kimono that's different from what uh, middle-class women wear. So I saw, I learned all these nuances just by watching them, listening to them talk about kimono. It's a very big part of their lives because it's how they present themselves as traditional artists. So um, it's, it's so important, in fact, that in my book on geisha, I include a chapter on kimono as, as part of the geisha, geisha's tradition. And then when I finished that book, I realized there was so much more um, to learn about kimono. And I mean, I credit the fact that I first was introduced to it through geisha that really opened my eyes to a lot of the, uh, the subtleties. Well, the book is fabulous. And it covers everything on kimono and uh, the way it's it's cut the fabrics the colors how did you how did you manage to find out all this information um it's called research <laughs> um you know i i love textiles but i am not a textile specialist my interest in this was how uh, the social meanings of kimono and how fashion changed and how kimono dealt with Western clothing when Western clothing uh, became popular. So, um, I, yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a very personal kind of history. I didn't try to uh, just follow every little change in kimono's history, but focus in on the eras that I think made a huge difference in the aesthetics of kimono, um, including of course the Heian period with the layered garments that we'll talk about later when we discuss yeah. the movie. Great. And I just have to ask you, Liza, training as the first non-Japanese geisha, amazing. So could you please tell us what that was like? Uh, well, you know, anthropologists call this participant observation. Uh, I had not intended to do this when I started the study. This was my um, PhD research in anthropology at Stanford, and I had planned to interview geisha in different areas of Japan um, to give them questionnaires and to observe. But I became very close with the um, geisha group that I fell in with in Kyoto. And eventually, as we became friends, uh, the idea that I, if I really wanted to understand their life, I would have to see it from the inside. And it was their idea. It kind of started out as a lark that I wear kimono um, and join them. It was only made possible by the fact that I could play the shamisen, which was, it's the instrument that's always been associated um, with the geisha. So, um, so that's how I made my entree and they were absolutely right. Just, uh, you know, seeing that world from the inside, I think is, what gave me a special angle that made the book um, more meaningful. My goodness, I see, I can imagine another podcast coming up. <laughs> That'll be great. John, it was Thank a long time <laughs> Thank you so much, Liza. You have so much knowledge about Japanese culture. It's really a, a, an honor, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. We're also honored to have Catherine Yamashita with us today. Catherine, why do you like kimono and how does it affect you when you're performing traditional Japanese dance? 
Well, thank you so much. And Liza, it's such an honor to be able to be with you and, and hear your story. It's, it's, um, I'm definitely going to be purchasing your book and reading it um, avidly. My experience with kimono started, I guess, when I was two or three. And um, there were two types of music that were played in my house. My mother loved um, wartime um, singers like uh, Misora Hibari and other Japanese singers. And she also loved Western music. And then my uncle moved in from Japan and he listened to a lot of Japanese music too. So I had two things that I played with when I was a kid. I dressed up in chaps with a gun and holsters and played cowboy. <laughs> and the other times I'd put on apparently um, Jap uh, not uh, just, you know, curtain shears, so sheer drape things that are on your windows. I used to put that over my body and get a Japanese bamboo back scratcher and dance to the music. And so I didn't even really know what Japanese dancing was. I hadn't seen it um, until I got a little older and we started going to the Kishu picnic. I don't know, John, if you remember, but the women danced Obono Dori there in kimono. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a dancer. So my mother dutifully took me off and I studied Japanese dance. Um, I thought it was four, but my sensei says I started at three and a half, which is pretty young for Odori. And I studied for probably a total of about 31 years. <clears throat> And then um, at that point, my daughter started taking dance and there was a lot of um, comparison between my daughter and myself. And um, I just felt that my daughter was feeling the pressure of being <laughs> my daughter. So I quit and became a dance mom and she became the dancer and she continued dancing for another 18 years. So it's kind of a, a general generational thing that's happened. But for me, the kimono, I think might have been the reason why I wanted to start to wear that pretty kimono, but I'm not sure because that whole, you know, drapery and back scratcher thing doesn't seem to relate as much to a traditional kimono. But that's the first thing we learn in Odori. Um, the, the order that you put your kimono on and that you can't dance without one. And so I always had one on. Um, basics for Odori also include the way that you wear your kimono, how you move in it, um, and many parts of dance include holding the sleeve, for instance, or part of the um, bottom part of the skirt. And so, um, <clears throat> as mentioned before, it's not just the movement, but it's actually becomes part of the prop. Um, and depending on your age, your status, the, the dance that you're doing, um, the type of kimono that you wear changes. And so for me, it's absolutely um, essential <laughs> to, um, my idea of what odori is. I mean, I have to admit there are times in the hot summer when I was practicing every day when I might have not put on my whole kimono when I was practicing, but it makes it much more difficult. You can't, you can't do odori without it. I think also the thing that's important is that it's a, it's, it's a status related um, art in Japan to study odori. So you have to um, go to a school, you have to pay for, um, the lessons, but also when they have the concerts, it's very expensive. The kimono are expensive. The rental of the hall is expensive. So my um, my sensei's father, who's a headmaster of the Ogawa Ryu style, decided that dance for dance sake was very important. So in his dance style in Japan, um, dancers only wear a very basic black kimono. And in Obi, they don't wear any of the fancy um, kimono that are associated with the dances and they wear, and they use very basic props. And um, in Japan, they don't have concerts. So it's kind of an art for art's sake school. 
but when my dancing teacher asked in Canada if she can um, have the school here, she decided, uh, her, her father decided, um, you can't just have a bunch of people, you know, dancing in black without props and never showing it off. So therefore, um, he told her, yes, you can start a school, but you'll have to have full costume, full kimono. Uh, she didn't want us to all have to worry about paying for all of that. So she bought all the kimono. Oh. And she lent them to us. She bought all the records and she lent them to us. And now that collection of kimono has been um, donated to the JCCC. So that's oh, isn't that nice? Thank you so much. And I've had the, that's really amazing. And I've had the honor and the pleasure of seeing you do, Odori. And and it's it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. The Toronto Japanese Film Festival will be screening a film called The Devil Wears Junihito Kimono. The story is about Ray, a frustrated student, and in a blinding flash of light, he's suddenly thrown back in time to the Heian period, that's the 11th century, and right into the classic novel, The Tale of Genji. So this is a lighthearted historical fantasy and a treat for lovers of sumptuous kimono. Liza, did you, did you have a chance to see the film? And, and what were some of your thoughts? Uh, I did see the film and um, I mean, it is a confection and a fantasy. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's light entertainment and it was very entertaining. The costumes are fabulous. I mean, uh, for me, it was worth it just, yeah. to, uh, just to see the costumes. However, I'm sure they were not authentic in the sense that when you are totally dressed in the 12 layers, the Juni Stoe, you can't move the way they move. In fact, historical research has showed that the, the women in the palaces did not usually walk uh, very much. They uh, probably, they more crawled life was much more close to the floor. Um, but, you know, again, as in any movie and all Western movies as well, when you do a historical re recreation, you do it according to modern sensibilities. And, and this is, I mean, that's what movie makers do. And that's what this movie is like. <laughs> Thank you. But I will so, tell you, I did yeah. have a chance to wear the 12 layers at one point when I was researching my novel, The Tale of Murasaki, just because I wanted to know what it felt like. Um, and it's heavy, all those different layers. And you lose your sense of your body. Your body becomes like the wick in a candle. And then all these accretions of kimono, it very much affects the way you move. That was a very interesting experience. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Catherine, did you have a chance to see the film? Yes, I did. And I enjoyed oh, it a lot. Oh, good. Do you have any thoughts about it? As Liza said, it really is a confection. And I thought, oh, no, this is kind of corny to begin with. Um, and the whole concept seemed a little bit corny, but it draws you in. It, yeah. as, as you find this kind of almost frivolous person who enters this much more serious world, you can really see how things change. With regard to the kimono themselves, um, it was lovely to see period, um, period drama. I see a lot because my mother-in-law lives with us and NHK is a, a constant companion in our house, but the elaborateness of the kimono was beautiful. Um, the, the Japanese 
sensei trained kimono dresser, however, kept on, like you're saying, um, Liza, I, I thought that's not the way you walk in a kimono, right? Or if you had to walk and it, it uh, and, and even the way that it, uh, the, the many layers were um, bound together by the obi, it didn't, I don't know, <laughs> because I was trained by my sensei on how to dress. It, that's one thing that's always preoccupying my mind. Um, mm -hmm. But we have to understand that these are actors and they have to be able to move and act and emote. And so um, I don't think it, it materially damaged the film at all. I actually love the transformation of the main character from this guy who's wearing hoodies and red running shoes and, <laughs> and his whole demeanor, his clothing slowly changes to um, completely authentic clothing. And then his persona changes, the character development really shows. And then there's this discomfort when he comes back. You know, it's, it's wonderful. I love it. Good, well, that's, that's fascinating. I love what you just said about the change in clothing to the contemporary clothing. And the 12 layers, uh, thank you for telling us about that, Liza, because when I was watching the film, I thought these are much bulkier looking uh, uh, kimonos than what I'm used to. I'm used to seeing something more tight and fitted, but but um, like you said, they probably it were they were not wearing twelve layers, but they were they were broader than what I'm used to seeing. Yes, yeah, so it was a slightly a different style, and the the modern kimono comes from what was originally the undergarment for for all of that, which was a single layer worn close to the body. I mean, wow. that's where my kimono yeah. came from. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think the real stars of the kimono, and I also liked some of the uh, traditional Japanese architecture. I know that they were sets, but um, they, I'm, I'm a visual guy, so I, I, I really I'll like that kind of thing. So, well, we're coming to a close here. Unfortunately, God, we could talk all afternoon with you guys about kimono. It's, it's wonderful. In conclusion, I want to thank our guests today. Thank you to Liza Dalby. Yay. Thank you to Catherine Yamashita. Yay. The Toronto Japanese Film Festival opens June the 5th, and you can order your passes right now online at jcc.on.ca. And it sounds like we uh, recommend seeing The Devil Wears Juni Hito Kimono. We will have information on Liza Dalby and how to order her books on the JCC podcast website as well. So thank you two for being here. It was really great. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to the story of Kimono. Thank you for joining us today. My name is John Ota, and this has been All Things Japanese from the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. Arigato. Arigato, thank you for being here. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 B